Good morning, ladies. For those of you that don't know me yet, my name is Eden Kukwinski, and I have been attending Cornerstone Second Street Campus with my family for about eight years now. My husband is Mark, and we have three great kids. And a lot of you know my youngest, Adriana, or at least you know of her. And I am so grateful to tell you that she is finally going into preschool without a complete meltdown every single time. And it took almost three months for that to happen. And I, I swear to you, it is only by the grace of God and the constant prayers of my small group here. So thank you, Jesus, for answered prayers for this tired mama. So when Pam first reached out last summer to see if I would present one of the lessons, I think I may have surprised her with my quick affirmative. In the past, I would just politely decline. And, you know, after adding that third baby to the family, it was easier to do so. It's like, ah, oh, you know, she's still little and it's hard to get a sitter. But I was coming off a somewhat long bender of doing solo study. I had stopped participating in Bible studies with the church for almost a whole year. Instead, I was doing them by myself at home so that I could maximize my time while my kids were in school you know, squeezing in house cleaning and working out and all the things that I wanted to accomplish in a short amount of time. I'm sure many of you can relate to that feeling, needing to get it all done and still have a hot minute to yourself. So I was pretty comfortable camped out there, but then summer rolled around and I was with my kids 24 seven while Mark was at work all week. And when Pam reached out towards the end of the summer, I was a little bit crazy. And I had finally realized what was lacking in my life. I missed fellowship. I missed being a part of a group of women that just comes up around you and loves on you while you love on them. And I was ready to jump back into the swing of things at church. So I figured, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. If I'm going to sign up for Bible study, why not present a lesson while I'm at it? God will give you the words, Eden. Now, for those of you who don't know me outside of this study yet, You'll know that I actually really do love to volunteer, even if I can't always admit it to myself or to those around me. So for the rest of the summer, I started studying 2 Corinthians. And when I got to chapter 9, I thought to myself, oh no. Because when I read through it, my first thoughts were actually what a jerk Paul seemed to be. He's bragging in every other sentence and seemingly guilt-tripping the Corinthians into their generosity. So obviously, after eight weeks of studying Paul's character, we know that's not reflective of who he really is. So let's dig in, and I will show you why I thought that, and then also how God used this Bible study and a few great commentaries to open my eyes to the truth of the matter. So chapter 9 opens up with five verses that almost seem like they belong with chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 5. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead 
to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. What had originally felt so boastful, Paul, so arrogant even, I see now after weeks of studying his character is just how much Paul loves the people that he's serving. So in verse three, when he says, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty and so that you may be ready, he's not blackmailing them into giving lest their character be impugned. He's working to spare them any embarrassment they might have if they aren't prepared when Paul arrives with the Macedonian leadership. As Aaron presented before our break, the Corinthians have already agreed to give generously to those in need, just as the Macedonians had done before them. Paul is encouraging them to follow through on that. He cares about them so deeply that he doesn't want anything to happen to them that would bring them pain, only things that will bring them closer to God. Verse two highlighted just how ready the Corinthians were and that their zeal had actually encouraged others to give generously as well. Verse four shows us again how Paul is working to spare the Corinthians any embarrassment that would ensue from them not being organized and ready to present their gift when Paul arrives. Paul concludes in verse five, talking about the men of integrity being sent ahead of him. The commendations at the end of chapter eight tell the Corinthians the credentials of these men being sent to them. They are honorable, blameless, and appointed by other churches for their good standing in the Jewish communities that they serve. So these men who Titus would travel with were coming to help the Corinthians prepare for Paul's arrival by organizing that generous collection of tithes that they've already promised to give in advance. So let's keep going. Verse six, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The textbook that presenters received to prepare for these lessons had a lot of really good things to say about this concept. The book is called Two Corinthians, The Glories and Responsibilities of Christian Service by Jeffrey Grogan. Mr. Grogan writes that in the opening of that sentence, the point is this, or more literally translated, and this. It introduces a double statement with a form that would suggest it was a popular proverb of the time. So whether it started in Christian circles or maybe from the Greek cultural environment of the Corinthian church, it certainly has its biblical roots. In fact, we know the Bible is full of proverbs and verses that talk about reaping what you sow. In Proverbs 11, 24, and 25, we read, One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. We even see a lot of this in our mainstream culture today, though it takes the Christianese out. The concept of karma, what goes around comes around, manifesting your own positive thoughts into the universe. But the Bible is pretty clear on that train of thought. In Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
It's true. We do sow what we reap. There are consequences to the choices we make. From the big ones that lead to life-altering endings to the little ones that maybe led to a few extra pounds over Christmas. But all kidding aside, the choices that we make in this world and this life have a direct effect on the world and life to come. The choice to walk in the ways of Jesus or to go our own way in even the smallest area has an effect on our spiritual growth and beyond. Even when it seems small to us who live in a world that so readily denies, minimizes, and ignores unrighteousness. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they have opportunities now that will have a positive effect for other believers and possibly even the salvation of those believers. So they can choose to be sparse in what they sow and how they contribute to the kingdom of Christ, or they can choose to give generously and therefore reap bountifully in the spoils of the kingdom to come. Sometimes we need advance notice, though, time to prepare our hearts to be in a giving mindset, time to rewrap our minds around the notion that everything we have is actually God's. And I just want to point out a funny little side note. I prepared this lesson back in December, weeks before Pastor Tim's new sermon series on generosity began. And I've noticed time and time again how God will reiterate a message in my life through multiple sources until I seem to get it. So I don't know if you guys have experienced that too, but here it is again. All right, back on track. In verse seven, Paul writes, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Before I had kids, I had the pleasure of working for two different community college foundations. You know the group. We're the ones that send letters asking you for money to advance the college's mission of educating future generations, as if you didn't contribute enough on your own tuition or maybe your kid's tuition. Or maybe you get letters from Cure or Samaritan's Purse or any of the other millions of charities and ministries around the world. I've got philanthropy in my blood, so to speak. The concept of being charitable might be easier for me than it is for others because I've worked on the front lines and I understand this. As a fundraiser, I've wrapped my head around the idea that it's good to make donations and I find joy in it. But I need to remember that my husband has a different mentality. He needs extra time to process. There is balance in the way we give to our church and other charities. I'm generous and he makes sure we're not destitute in retirement. No, no, I'm just kidding. Mark is very generous as well, but he provides the balance that our giving needs. When we make a contribution, it's done with a cheerful heart and there is no resentment. Paul is saying that it's not a matter only of what we give, but the reason for our giving. He's not seeking to put pressure on the Corinthians to give. He hasn't been attempting to override their wills or dictate to them what they should do. Rather, he's trying to communicate to them that decisions about giving must come from the heart. Because in the end, that's what Jesus is most concerned with, our hearts. But notice that Paul doesn't ignore the amount of the gift. When we make a gift to our church or to any charity, the amount of that gift needs to be the result of thoughtful decision, not of impulse, which is where I often struggle. It shouldn't be checking what's in your wallet as the offering plate is making its way down the aisle. 
Borrowing again from Jeffrey Grogan, he writes that good stewards of another person's property should give careful thought to expenditure. How much more so when we are stewards of God himself? Giving should not be left to the whim of the moment, although this does not mean we cannot make an adjustment to our plans when some urgent need comes unexpectedly into view. I love Pastor Tim's analogy about holding your earthly riches in an open palm. God instructs us to keep our palm open and he will use and replenish as he sees fit. But the moment we close our fist around our earthly possessions, taking the reins from God, so to speak, we're telling God that we've got his resources under control and we don't need his input on how he thinks they should be used. It's really important to remember that a closed fist doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to stop providing for us if we fail to be fully righteous in our stewardship. There are certainly enough examples in this world of the unrighteous having plenty of wealth. We see it every day. But in the end, we will all give an account before the throne and be judged accordingly to how we use the earthly riches that he blessed us with. There is a wonderful little book called Impossible Christianity. Um, it's by Pastor Kevin DeYoung, and I, I did it last fall with my community group. And there's a chapter that talks about why following Jesus doesn't mean you have to change the world or be an expert in everything. Um, Pastor DeYoung talks head on about the guilt that Christians often put on themselves regarding a variety of topics. And one chapter is dedicated solely to the so-called camel in the room. And it's taken from the parable of the rich man asking how to get into heaven from Matthew 19. Pastor DeYoung talks about the myth that a rich Christian has to feel guilty for being rich. And a first look at that Matthew 19 parable might have you believe that the rich aren't going to heaven unless they get rid of all their riches. But then he goes on to give so many examples from Luke and Acts of wealthy Christians who are getting it right. So for the sake of time, I'll let you poke around Matthew 19 in your own free time and, and in Luke and Acts as well to see the many examples and cautions that Luke gives. But before you go and say, but wait, I'm not rich. Think about this. By most of the world's standards, everyone in this room is rich. Even if it doesn't feel that way after the December credit card bill came in. The Corinthians were in the same boat. By most of the early world standards, they were wealthy. Paul is just reminding them that their hearts are in the right place and that their generosity is a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. Pastor DeYoung also writes, But the early church had a wonderful communal spirit. Their pattern is a model for God's people. The church was fulfilling the ideal of the promised land in which there will be no poor among you, from Deuteronomy 15.4. He writes, Radical generosity in the church is a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom. When we share with our brothers and sisters in need, we demonstrate that God's promised reign and rule is taking root here and now. It's a little bit of heaven on earth. All right, let's dig back into verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In the very first chapter of this letter, Paul writes quite often about how God is the source of all good things for the Christian. He is the source of all blessing. Yes, 
but he's also the source of all of the spiritual qualities in our lives. So not only does God love a cheerful giver, as we saw in verse 7, but he's also the one who made it possible for a, gen- for a giver to be generous in the first place. Verse 8 says, and God is able. He is able to make all grace abound to us. He is able to make us generous. He is able to impart moral qualities right into our hearts. And even though that's the case, that God is able to do all those things, our generosity still falls far short of God's generosity because his generosity meant giving us his own son. After celebrating Christmas and having it so very fresh in mind, I'm reminded of Mary's words when the angel Gabriel told her that she would carry the Messiah. Her response in Luke 1.38 was this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. When I think about Mary's response to this news, this earth-shattering news that was about to change not only her life, but her entire family's as well and her new husband's, And I think about how obedient she was, giving up her body and her soul to our sweet baby Jesus. I am ashamed at how I sometimes respond to the simple things that God requests of me. Perspective can be sobering. And then I think about the Corinthian church and their zeal for the Lord. They were willing to share from their excess to supply the needs of other suffering Christians. I want my life to look like that. I want to obediently keep my hand open so the Lord can use what he's blessed us with as he sees fit. I don't pretend to be a martyr because I think in a lot of ways my family is obedient in serving others, but I also want to keep my eyes open ways that we can do even better. Did you notice that the word abound is written twice in that sentence? Every writer throughout All of history has words that they love and writing styles that they prefer, and Paul is no exception. The word abound is written perisuean in the original text. And I'm going to spell it out for those who are listening. It's P-E-R-I-S-S-E-U-E-I-N. I'm pretty sure that I butchered it just terribly, so forgive me, but I'm going to keep saying perisuean. So by using it twice, Paul is making an emphasis on a point of God's character. He is presenting a picture of a God who overflows generosity and therefore reproduces some of that same character in his followers. Let's look at verse 9. In verse 9, Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 112, verse 9. He writes, As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, on first glance, you might think that the he in that sentence is in reference to God. However, if you open up to the Old Testament to that psalm, you actually see that the author is talking about the man who fears the Lord. Psalm 112 verses 1 through 3 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. I don't know about you guys, but I want that. I want to fear the Lord. 
and be so much in awe of him that I just delight in his commandments and my desire to follow him. When we read the Bible, it is so important to not just pull out a single verse and look at it on its own. Each verse is connected to the ones before and after it. So when our pastors preach on the importance of knowing the word, this is what they're talking about. Our Bible is a guidebook. It's a love letter. It is a direct message from God on how we are to live our lives. And Psalm 112 is a great example of that. It tells us how to live, how to trust in the Lord, how to have a steady heart, and how to use our riches and live a generous life that honors the Lord. Paul was a well-read man, and he knew his scriptures. So his reference to this verse was incredibly deliberate. Jeffrey Grogan writes, In the Old Testament, a person's attitude to the poor is a major criterion distinguishing the righteous from the wicked. And this is the point being made in the verse Paul quotes. So when I originally got the sense that Paul was making the Corinthians feel like they could earn their salvation by ponying up funds for others, you know, justification by works, it looks completely different when you take the verse in context with the Old Testament verses that it's referring to. Paul gives clear evidence in verse 8 that all of this is the product of grace, not of human effort. And then verse 10 supports this even further. So now when it says he, Paul is again referring to God. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So again, whether we're sowing literal or spiritual seeds, it's God who generously provides the materials needed and decides the outcome. I keep coming back to that keep your hand open example. My ESV study Bible had a great note on verse 10 that says, the promise that God will increase the harvest should not be understood in material terms, but in terms of increasing our righteousness. God's promise is that he will use his people and their resources as instruments of his grace for the salvation of others. Verse 11 continues like this. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will provide, will produce thanksgiving to God. So I'm going to repeat what the ESV study Bible said just before. God's promise is that he will use his people, us, and their resources, our time, talent, and treasure, as instruments of his grace for the salvation of others for the salvation of others. I am most definitely sure that that's what the Great Commission is all about. And I think that's what Paul is trying to convey to the Corinthians in his letters. They had the opportunity to be generous in every way by the grace of God through his power, not their own, to increase their righteousness in his eyes and to encourage others into the kingdom of salvation with them all of which would bring glory to God. And all of this brought Paul to a state of thanksgiving. Let's finish it out with verses 12 through 15. <clears throat> Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing, abounding, in many thanksgivings to God. Overflowing is the same word used in the beginning of the chapter. 
abounding, Parasuean. The Corinthians were supplying the needs of the Jerusalem Christians, people they had never met. And those Jerusalem Christians would in turn have hearts overflowing in thanksgiving to God. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Genuine faith always manifests itself through obedience and love. When we are obedient to God in how he calls us to live and give, we are visibly demonstrating the gospel of Christ. Generosity, when motivated by a divine purity, is a manifestation of love. Paul's call to the Corinthians to support the ministry in Jerusalem was met with a beautiful, resounding yes. They were obedient and loving. And in return, Paul reminded them of the glory that this would bring to God. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thank you, ladies.